Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we are talking about a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, which is archaeology. I am a big geek. And I did not know this about you. Yeah, well, you learn all sorts of things about me. I read romance novels. (laughs) I wanted to be an archaeologist. And it's, it's all because of Indiana Jones, let's be honest. Yeah, it was? Yeah, as a kid, I watched uh, Temple of Doom. I know, it's not everybody's favorite. Get over it. I watched Temple of Doom over and over and over again, and I was Ooh, like... how? I Well, I knew when to cover my eyes when he ripped the guy's heart out. And when they're crawling through that roach cave? Yeah, well, you know, I'm afraid of bugs. I don't know if it's because of that. The, ro- the roach cave... But yeah, I was convinced that I was going to be an archaeologist and I was convinced of this up and through up until my freshman year of college. Really? And I took an anthropology class. You know, I went to college as, as an undecided like many like many kids do. Quick question though, did you wear a lot of khaki in these days? <laughs> I didn't. Okay. <laughs> Shoot. Shoot. No, I wore camo instead. Okay. <clears throat> No, I I took an anthropology class. I was determined that I was going to become an archaeologist. And I was all, I was with it. You learn about monkeys. And I was was there. And then we got to the archaeology section and I fell asleep every day in class. Oh. I know. It just wasn't as interesting. And I guess once you find out all the nitty gritty details behind like your dream job, it might not seem as appealing. And your professor did not look like Harrison Ford? No. Shockingly. No, and neither did my TA. But I, I can tell you the difference between a boy monkey head and a girl monkey head. Oh, yeah? So there's that. Okay. Yeah. That's all I got, though. Well, now you know even more about archaeology, though, Caroline, because you have <laughs> dug up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you dug up a history of women in archaeology. Yeah, and if I had become an archaeologist, I would have been a rare breed. Part of a rare breed. Indeed. And books on women in archaeology are also rare. And we are pulling from three primary books. Uh, this, this one isn't so much article-based, but more based on books. Let's go ahead and toss out the three books that we are going to be discussing today. The first of which would be Ladies of the Field, Early Women Archaeologists and Their Search for Adventure by Amanda Adams. Then we have Excavating Women, A History of Women in European Archaeology. And the third is Women in Archaeology by Cheryl Classen. She writes the intro. It was sort of a, a big group of essays about famous lady archaeologists. So, right off the bat, we can go ahead and tell you that women do not have a very strong presence in archaeology, maybe perhaps because of an Indiana Jones effect. Maybe. Not sure. I don't know. He was handsome. He was. I was, I was ready to go hang out with him. <laughs> but even though women uh, comprise a small percentage of archaeologists, they have been digging up all those artifacts since it was first created as a discipline in the 19th century. Yeah, and really you can think of, of anybody, men or women, who were part of the field during the 19th century as pioneers. And one 
woman who who comes to mind is Joanna Mestorf. She's German, who, despite not being able to go to university in Germany, built an academic career on self-study. And she actually became the first female museum director in Germany in 1891. And it was a lot of women like this who might not have had a formal education at first, who taught themselves all they needed to know, or they worked alongside their husbands or fathers to find out everything there was in the field. Yeah, it wasn't uncommon for a woman like Messdorf to not have a college education because women being permitted to university lectures really wasn't formally permitted in places like Great Britain, Norway, and Denmark until the 1870s. Uh, Cambridge, for instance, granted women full membership in 1948. Uh, but it had established an all-female college in the meantime. Um, but at the same time, upper-class educated women especially were still taught Latin and Greek, which ties in a lot with uh, the interest in archaeology. Italy had become a popular destination site as the, you know, the seat of the home of the classics. Um, and then there was also this rise in um, an interest in Egyptology in the 19th century as well. Yeah. Granted, a lot of the the excavations and expeditions that were going on in Egypt were kind of looting. Yes. But, but there was still an interest, even if it was in stealing gold. But uh, after World War I, more women started going to college. More women also started entering the field of archaeology. But a lot of them were going about it a different way than men were. Instead of going on digs and leading these projects, a lot of women were getting into the field through museum work and research, which we shouldn't... I mean, that's not a bad thing. No. They contributed quite a bit, but they were just, go- they had to sort of go about it in more of an indirect way. Yeah, I thought it was, uh, interesting. There was a quote from, this is coming from 1933, saying that, I think this was from a male museum curator, saying that women are especially suited to museum work by their love of the beautiful, their adaptability, and their patience in detailed work. So academia, the more academic side of, uh, archaeology and actually going on those digs, more closed off. But women were, come to the museum, handle this pottery and jewelry. You like fine things. <laughs> Here is something sparkly. You have soft hands. <laughs> yeah, don't go outside. Uh, but Cheryl Classen, who we mentioned at the beginning, uh, looks at archaeology through the lens of gender. And she talks about how really until the 60s, uh, upper class educated white women were sort of repelled from the field, particularly going out on digs and whatnot. And in the U.S. in the 1930s, she says that there was a class and race based definition of femininity that limited women's involvement in the field. And during this time, while more women were getting involved in archaeology, digs, things like that, it was sort of limited, particularly in the U.S., to more unskilled Labor, Yeah, and often that was uh, had racist undertones to it because it was really only open to black women. I didn't know this. Um, excavation came to be considered appropriate work for unemployed women, especially women of color, in New Deal projects mm-hmm. in the 1930s and the 1940s. So there was this issue of femininity, but only if you're an upper-class white woman. Mm-hmm. If you're a lower-class woman, black or white... It's all right if you get your hands dirty. Go out in the field. Yeah, sure. that was the attitude. Uh, now, Klassen says, uh, women constitute still a very small percent. In the 90s, she said that only 15% of the archaeologists in the top 30 academic departments 
were women, and many work in small contract companies or have only research affiliations with departments and museums. Basically, this means that women end up having few role models of their same gender, and that leads to poor networks, essentially. And this reflects a lot from the the conversations that we've had about women in uh, sciences and the STEM courses, science, Mm -hmm. uh, technology, engineering, and math. We see that reflected um, in archaeology as well. And uh, this is coming from a 2011 article on biblicalarchaeology.org. Jenny Ebling, an associate professor of archaeology at the University of Evansville in Indiana, pointed out that... uh, in the biblical archaeology reviews, which, Caroline, I'm sure you have a subscription to that. <laughs> Absolutely. In their 2011 list of dig opportunities in Israel, naturally because it's biblical archaeology, mm-hmm. only two of the 22 excavations were either directed or co-directed by women. And she also found that fewer than a third of the licenses granted by the Israel Antiquities Authority of 2011 were issued to female archaeologists. And she's not entirely sure why, but as comes up so often in this podcast, there is a significant gender gap. There is. And Klassen, uh, like we mentioned, who looks at archaeology not necessarily from just being a science field and looks at it as a gender, sort of a, the whole gendered aspect of it and mm-hmm. women's involvement, she says that homophobia is a part of why women have not been involved. And there was this whole issue of, like we said, femininity, traditional femininity, and that if you were a woman who not only wanted to pursue education but wanted to pursue an quote-unquote athletic pursuit like archaeology you were non-feminine you were a non-woman and so there was this whole idea that connected uh feminist the feminist movement or feminism to lesbianism Mm -hmm. and so you were just this total oddball if you wanted to participate in something that was dirty and outside well and this is coming from uh, 1904 a director of Denmark's National Museum said the work of the monuments of our fatherland is according to its nature men's work and it demands the exercise of physical strength and stamina which cannot be expected to be found amongst women it's that outdoor labor that's involved with um, the digging, which is maybe why still, you know, we don't see a lot of female dig directors, but we are in the laboratories. I was about to say laboratories. <laughs> we are in the laboratories, uh, in the museums, uh, working with pottery, textiles, jewelry, and more specialized um, fields. Right. And one one person who still makes people angry is Harvard professor Edward H. Clark, who was working in the mid to late 1800s. Women... Watch your ovaries. He Uh said that mental activity interfered with ovulation, so women should focus on their reproductive abilities. The education of women creates a class of sexless humans. Oh, my God, it upsets the whole system. If you're not a manly man or a girly girl, we don't know what you are. Well, I I think that we can say that uh, since Edward, old Ed, was saying this in the, the mid to late 1800s, I think uh, women, modern women, have proven him wrong. We are still <laughs> producing women having sexual intercourse and careers. It's yeah. incredible. And we go outside. <laughs> yes. Sometimes. Um, and Glasson talks about archaeology and how it combines athleticism and intelligence. Those two traditionally male-gendered uh, characteristics. 
Yeah, which ended up dissuading some women from pursuing it. I mean, there could have been some women out there who thought, man, going to Egypt and digging up a treasure trove, that sounds really interesting, but I better stay home and just do my knitting. Or think about, I mean, the the cultural icon of archaeology that we have is Indiana Jones. And I'm not saying anything against Indiana Jones films. I love them. I love them as a child. I will watch them still today. But nevertheless, you know, it does have that, you know, maybe that connotation of archaeology as this masculine field where the women are just gorgeous vixens and, you know, well-dressed curators. Exactly. Delicate things floating through museums. And my goodness, and there's nothing wrong with a well-dressed curator either. (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, but I want to talk about some of our archaeology all-stars, yes. these women who really paved the way for other women to get involved in the field. I'm also imagining, like, you know, in, in your college freshman <laughs> dorm room, you had posters of these women. No no bands or, like, you know, John Belushi in his college T-shirt. You had a poster of, let's say, Amelia Edwards, the oh. godmother of Egyptology, who was quite a gal. Yeah, she uh, she was around from 1831 to 1918. Uh, Edwards was definitely an independent woman, thanks to no one will ever say this again. Okay, in in modern history, she was independent and financially secure thanks to her career as a journalist. Huh. That would never apply anymore. Anyway, she was homeschooled from a young age by a mother who avoided teaching her housework. Her mother had it seemed like her mother had other plans for her. She also never married, um, and one of her great loves was Marianne North, the botanical artist, for those of you out there familiar with her work, um, and she was also uh, had a long-term relationship with Lucy Renshaw, identified only as L in Edward's journal, um, and who accompanied her on some of her Middle East travels. And um, she comes in 1873 to Alexandria and became an expert on local archaeology and helped found the Egypt Exploration Fund in 1882. Edwards is really credited during this time that she helped uh, found this group um, of making archaeology accessible to the common person. She always encouraged her students to write about archaeology in a way that was accessible to other people. And so her work for the fund involved raising money, writing articles, and lecturing, and she ended up uh, receiving honorary degrees from Columbia University, Smith College, and the College of the Sisters of Bethany. So clearly people out there were like, oh, well, I guess she's smart, even though she's a girl. I guess we'll give her the stuff. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, another notable lady we should talk about um, who teams up with her husband, in this case, um, Jane Dulafoy. She became known for her cross-dressing so that she could fight in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. And she and her husband, Marcel, wanted to, obviously after the war ended, they wanted to reach the legendary site of Susa, east of the Tigris River and home to an ancient city. And hundreds of people flocked to help them excavate this site. Yeah, Dulafoy is really interesting. There's a picture of her in uh, in the book, Ladies of the Field. And sh- she's kind of turned to the side in profile. She has her hair chopped off. She's wearing men's clothing. And she, she has a striking resemblance, might I say, to one young uh, Dustin Hoffman. Really? <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, she and her husband went traipsing around the Middle East. Uh, they loved it. She, she really was dedicated to the whole idea of uncovering this city in Susa. And they did. They found a lot. They found like 54 boxes worth big, 
large crates, not just boxes worth of stuff that they ended up taking back with them to France. And she, she was no shrinking violet. She wasn't just sitting back, you know, being fanned with palm fronds. No, she was overseeing the dig. She had people reporting to her and she oversaw every painstaking detail of excavating Basically, they, they were enameled bricks that were part of giant friezes in the Palace of Darius, which was quite a big find. And just to point out what a celebrity she became at the time, um, after coming back stateside, the New York Times reported that she received the authorization of the government to appear in public in costume because she was so well known at this point for her what would be considered cross-dressing, which really today would probably just be like wearing slacks and a shirt. Right, exactly, yeah. And uh, the, the <laughs> It would just look like Dustin Hoffman hanging out, basically. <laughs> yeah, young Dustin Hoffman. Um, but they point Point out that the privilege of being able to wear men's clothing around in the streets was normally reserved for the mentally ill or handicapped. So this was a high honor. <laughs> so it was a high honor, and she she was pretty fashionable too. It's not like she just wore any old pants. So so in exchange for her doing things such as oh I don't know unearthing the palace of Darius, people were like, well, uh, oh you can wear pants. How about that? <laughs> How about that? Congratulations, pants. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's funny because that actually, her wearing men's clothing was not just about traveling easier. It was about safety because a lot of the places that she traveled in the Middle East, she would not have been able to pass through safely as a woman. And and she even had to shave her head at one point because the lice got so bad. Yeah, so they got to some, where were they? They got to some palace and the, the ruler was like, no, you're not a woman. I don't, she had a shaved head, was wearing pants. He He wouldn't believe her. Hmm. Well, what about Kathleen Kenyon? What can you tell me about her? Well, Kathleen Kenyon is very famous. Uh, she actually didn't start out with any interest in particular in archaeology. Uh, her interest was sparked when she joined Gertrude Caton Thompson on the 1929 all-women excavation of Great Zimbabwe as a wow. photographer. And she went on to work at Roman Britain's third largest city, Verulamium, Verulamium. It's one of those. Yes. With, with Sir Mortimer Wheeler. And together they developed the Wheeler Kenyon method, which still influences, uh, excavation methods. And it had to do with stratigraphic analysis. Instead of just digging any old place, you would pay attention to the strata of the dirt. The layers, the vertical layers yes, of the dirt. Mm-hmm. Well done. <laughs> And just for a few examples of some things that she dug up, perhaps using that very Wheeler Kenyon method, she, uh, just before World War II, she excavated the jewelry wall at Leicester, whose public baths are a rare example of civil Roman architecture. Yeah. And she was also the first acting director of the Institute of Archaeology of the University College of London, founded in 1937 to provide instruction in proper excavation techniques. And what Kenya is possibly the most famous for is her uh, excavation of the ancient city of Jericho, which she uncovered the first walled city full with houses and courtyards dating back to the Neolithic era. So this was a huge find because one area they found, it was like this huge staircase along a wall. It made me think of Monty Python's The Life of Brian, that whole thing. Anyway, it's older than some of the pyramids. So. Wow. So, yeah, good job, Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, another woman that we have to talk about is Hannah Marie Wormington. She uh, was around from 1914 to 1994. She was the first woman admitted to the Department of Anthropology at Harvard who also 
graduated. Technically, she was the second woman admitted overall. But she was admitted to Harvard in 1937 and received her Ph.D. in 1954. And according to her obituary in the New York Times, Warmington was an expert on the Paleo-Indian period, and she was affiliated with the Denver Museum of Natural History for nearly 60 years. And to round out this uh, this list of notable female archaeologists, we have Lithuanian Maria Gambudis, whose focus was on Indo-European studies in the Bronze and Neolithic periods. And she was notable because of the way that she brought together linguistic and archaeological knowledge. Right. And this she took her study of basically in her in her biography, they talk about how it's sort of inappropriate for archaeologists to get too deep into people's culture, maybe uh, to assume too much about their religion and whatnot. But she kept finding all of those goddess figures, mm-hmm. you know, the the round women or whatever. And she she basically developed this this theory of the goddess. And she saw the female form rendered in thousands of images and said that it reflected the centrality of women in religious and cultural life. Basically said, like, look, all these people were worshiping women. And not only was her theory a big deal and her two books on the goddess were a big deal, but her whole theory became such a huge deal to feminists and women and environmentalists and nature worshipers and uh, the primordial deity for our Paleolithic and Neolithic ancestors, in her biography it says, was female, reflecting the sovereignty of motherhood. And I can imagine, I mean, if she's coming out with this uh, in the mid-20th century, that probably was a pretty revolutionary idea for people who probably conceptualize, a lot of times we conceptualize, in the Western world at least, and Judeo-Christianity conceptualizes uh, you know, gods as masculine. Right. So that was probably pretty groundbreaking at the time. Um, and one final name who will be much more familiar probably to listeners is she was not an archaeologist, but archaeology was highly influential for her because her husband um, was an archaeologist in the Middle East, Agatha Christie, the famous mystery writer. She spent 30 years assisting her husband's work in the Middle East um, and she would write her books in between and hence you have archaeology themed Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Go Agatha! So, those are some names that uh, I bet a lot of listeners haven't heard from and I really, really, really hope that we have some archaeologists out there listening and um, if it's male archaeologists you have women working with you women in the field what's it like yeah. very curious to know because I feel like we, you know, we don't really talk about archaeology all that much I mean we'll hear about King Tut every now and then but this idea of you know figuring out how the discipline even came to be and women's role in it is uh, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, exactly. So I'm glad that you wanted to be one as a child, Yay! Caroline, so that I could learn more. And I just want one final thing about my freshman year experience. Yes. So I so badly wanted to do this. I thought it was going to be so cool. <laughs> and I, I remember telling my, my slightly stuck-up roommate about it. And she was like, I mean, what is possibly left to find? I, I just want everyone to let that soak in. She actually said, what is left to find. And so every time I see something on the news about something being discovered somewhere, I think of her. Think of her. Yep. You know what you should have said? There's space, space archaeology. (laughs) Moon excavation. (laughs) Moon castles. Yes. 
So now that you're thinking about uh, moon castles, <laughs> send us your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also head over to Facebook or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And in the meantime, got a couple of letters here for you. Uh, we've got one from Zoe, and this is in response to our episode on prom. Zoe writes, I'm still in high school and have not yet experienced the prom, although in my school it's just called grad. Hmm. I live in a very rural community in Canada, and most of the people at school are redneck farm kids. From what I gather, our graduation banquet is going to be a campfire barbecue in the woods somewhere, and the dance will probably end up at the rodeo grounds. One of my friends was actually looking up camouflage print dresses. Another great plan that I've heard from the two boys in my class is that they're going to wear Carhartt farm clothes and show up in a grain truck or a tractor, which I think is way cooler than a stretch Hummer limo. And Zoe, I do agree with that. (laughs) I find it really annoying how prom is marketed to teens through movies, TV, and teen romance novels where it's blasphemy to make light of the prom. You can easily tell that it has really affected teen culture by the way the majority of the girls in my class object to these ideas. They obviously expect prom to be the super romantic, extravagant event that they have seen and read about. I personally think that I'm going to side with the boys. Don't take it so seriously and just have some fun while it lasts. And this is from Dawn about our episode on having the talk with your kids. Uh, she said that she listened intently to that episode because I have a nine-year-old son who will soon be ready to know the truth about how babies are made. He has known for a while that moms have an egg and dads have a seed, which come together to make a baby. When he was seven, he said, yes, I know that, but how does the transfer take place? He's very detail-oriented. Uh, we told him he'd have to wait until he was older to find out the answer. There are some wonderful books I'd like to recommend to listeners, which I learned about in library school. Robbie Harris has several books that explain things to kids in a clear way with lots of great illustrations and humorous discussion between a bird and a bee that lighten things up. It's Not the Stork is for younger kids. It's So Amazing is for kids in the upper elementary grades. And It's Perfectly Normal is for middle school age kids. I have them in my closet, ready to go when the time comes. And good to hear that she is prepped. Yeah, prepped for the talk. And good luck with that talk when the time comes. Uh, again, our email address is momstuffatdiscovery.com if you'd like to send us a letter. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search Stuff Mom Never Told You. Or follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And if you'd like to read what we're doing during the week, you can head over to our website. It's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?